This is Rumble with Michael Moore. And I'm Michael Moore. Well, it's been a great summer weekend here on the East Coast of the United States. Even though it is the middle of January, man, it's been great. Almost 70 degrees both days in New York, 70 in Boston, in the 70s in Washington, D.C. People walking around on the street in their t-shirts, no sweaters, no jackets, no coats, no scarves. Oh, air feels so, you know that, you know how spring smells? <laughs> That's what it was like this weekend. I swear to God, I, there was a guy actually <laughs> walking down the street with his shirt off. You know the weather's good when you see that. And in fact, I'm sitting here in my little podcast studio in my apartment with the uh, window open because uh, it's just so nice outside. I got a lot of uh, a lot of spring cleaning done this weekend. Picked up, threw out, straightened up, sorted, filed, took the Christmas tree down. Finally, it was. <laughs> I know it's up a little long, but it seemed like such a shorter season this year for some reason. So I just, I you know they they didn't take the Rockefeller uh, Center Christmas tree down until yesterday, Sunday, in uh, in Manhattan. So I figured, okay, well, I beat them by a day. I had a good tree this year. It, it had the greatest smell, just fresh pine. Whatever it is, it was just, I don't know, it just uh, lifted my spirits. And um, of course, my tree topper wasn't the uh, baby Jesus or the, the star, the Bethlehem star. It's uh, for the third year in a row, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, not actually Justice Ginsburg herself. It was a, um, it's an actual Christmas tree topper that somebody made in the, in the likeness of uh, RBG. And so that sits about, uh, atop my tree full of hope. She announced this week that she was cancer free. That was great to hear again after now, how many four plus bouts of cancer? Good way to enter the new year. So the tree came down and um, went to see a couple movies, really good movies. Uh, one was called Just Mercy with uh, Jamie Foxx and Michael, Michael B. Jordan, not the basketball player, but the actor. And uh, boy, it was, uh, it was great. It's a great, powerful story about uh, injustice, mass incarceration. I know you're saying to yourself, I've worked hard all week. Uh, do I have to go see a mass incarceration drama at the theater on the weekend? Yes, you do. It's a great movie. Yeah. Just like a few weeks ago, Dark Waters, the story of how we got Teflon uh, by poisoning uh, a whole area of West Virginia, DuPont, Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo. Great film. Uh, but again, I know it's like, Mike, please, I work hard. I need to relax on the weekend. Don't make me go see a movie on how Teflon poisoned all of us. But hey, I don't steer you wrong. When I send you the, to these kinds of movies, I'm not doing it just because the issue is right or it's something we all believe in or fighting against or whatever. I'm o I would only recommend a movie if it was a great movie. It's not because of its politics. Believe me. In fact... Uh, movies that have good politics but are are shitty movies they hurt the issue they would have been we all would have been better off if they had not made the movie in these cases though with dark waters and, and just mercy you can't go wrong you're getting a great film great actors great story 
you don't know which way it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to end. It's, it's, uh, it was wonderful. It was really, it was good. And the other movie I saw was a, a French movie that I um, was at the Cannes Film Festival this year. I was there to hand out an award to the one of the top films, and uh, and this was one of the award winners. Uh, it's called Le Miserable. It's not the actual story by Victor Hugo of Le Miserable. It's certainly not the musical. It's <laughs> sorry, I know. I'm not anti-musical, just uh, going on the record here. I'm just saying that uh, this story has been told and retold so many times. My favorite film version of the actual Victor Hugo story is the one that was redone and set in World War II, the 1995 French uh, version. If you get a chance to see that, Le Miserable uh, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in, I think, 96. Um, uh, Check that out. That is a great movie. But this Le Miserable is the title. It's set in current day um, France and deals with the racism and the, the, the way that Arab people, Muslims, uh, black French citizens have to live. It is not a pleasant um, view of their life. The only reason it's called Le Miserable I think, is because the elementary school that these poor kids have to go to in that neighborhood is the Victor Hugo Elementary School, and so that's the, the connection to the title. But I guess it does. I mean, it has something to do with the fact that one of the one of the characters says, you know, um, not much has changed since Victor Hugo wrote about the suffering of the poor back in the late 1800s, uh, and you could say that that is true to some extent. Um, and um, although you know, obviously France has done many good things to uh, try and have a Better safety net for everybody there. Certainly a better one than we have here. But anyways, that was a good movie too. So if you get a chance to see that. But uh, if you just heard the horn honk while I was saying that, because the window's open here. But it's just such a such a beautiful day. It's actually night now when I'm recording this. And, um, and I started thinking that, why am I thinking that this is a great day or a great weekend? Because it was 70 degrees. I mean, really. I mean, think about that. Why are we celebrating that? Now, this is the weather on the East Coast this past weekend. Now, the rest of the country in Michigan, you had a big ice storm and, and you had a lot of tornadoes down in the South. So it's it's crazy weather all over the country right now uh, and has been and will be. And, and we all know the reason. But I just, everybody today on the show, oh, isn't this great? Oh, it feels so good. Oh, it's a... And 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 I I really thought I thought yeah but shouldn't we be screaming bloody murder shouldn't we be running away somewhere it's it's seventy degrees in January in the north it, it, it seriously it we should be scared shitless instead of appreciating it because let me tell you let me let me just I'll give you an example if if uh, tonight late tonight like one or two in the morning. All of a sudden, the sun started to rise. What would you do? You, you're, let's say you're still up, or maybe you've gone to bed and, and you're, you're, you're awakened by the fact that there's sun coming in the window at one or two in the morning. What, what would you do? Oh my God, look, honey, more sunlight today. We're going to have a really good day. It's going to be so long. All oh, these days in the winter are so short. Now we're going to have a really long day of sun today. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to start screaming. 
You're going to start gathering the kids. You're going to like, we got to run. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Right? We'd be scared shitless if the sun rose in the middle of the night. And it would tell us that something was seriously wrong, wouldn't it? It would tell us that either the earth is on its way, hurtling itself to the sun, or vice versa, the sun is on its way to the earth, or something else we can't even explain. But we would know, I think, we'd have a sense that perhaps the end was near. But when it's 70 degrees in the middle of January, we're joyous, (laughs) we're happy. And right now, with what we're living through, what we're going through, I I guess, um, you know, we'll take whatever bit of happiness we can get even if it is something that is actually a signal to us that something is very, very, very wrong. This is episode 18 of Rumble with Michael Moore. Having a drink of water here because it's so hot out. Episode 18. Wow. Um, Thank you, all of you who have been listening uh, to this podcast. I'm so happy I decided to do this. I mean, I had no idea. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't never done anything like this before. Just wanted to be able to have this conversation with you. And and also, I did not want to, I made a decision. I told you, if you listen to the first podcast, um, that I was not going to make a movie this year. I was not going to do a TV series. I had, I stopped prepping um, both of these things that I was planning to do in the year 2020 and decided that there was no way that I could do anything other than this and anything that I'm going to be doing related to this in terms of the political action that I and others need to do in order to, number one, get rid of Donald Trump, and number two, get rid of that which gave us Donald Trump. And um, and so that's um, that's what I decided to do. Uh, we just threw into this here. We didn't, you know, we talked about it and kind of planned it out as best we could for a few months. But basically, um, nobody gave us any money. I don't, you know, I, I don't have any grant money. No, no uh, billionaires written a check to pay for this. Uh, this is just um, myself and, and Basil, um, the executive producer of this. Just uh, given of our time uh, on our dime, and now we don't want it to go on like this because we know it won't last. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying we wouldn't take a contribution from some um, well-meaning foundation, um, but sometimes you just can't wait. You can't wait to do it right or wait until you're, you've got the money. And if, if somehow you can just, in your spare time, do the things you need to do, that's what we decided to do. Um, and we know it won't, it, this won't last on its own. And so we will have to do like NPR or something, I guess, and have underwriters, you know, just, just not, not ads, not commercials, just somebody to sponsor, underwrite the show, you know, to somebody to let us do this. Uh, we're never going to charge you. Uh, it's This is always going to be free. We're not going to do it unless it's absolutely free. There's never going to be a, a paywall or whatever. It's it's um, This is a completely free podcast. It's free on whatever platform you're listening to it, whether you got this through iTunes or Spotify or Google or Stitcher or Overcast or, you know, any of the other uh, smaller podcast platforms. Uh, it's, it's all free. Um, you should... I hope you subscribe to it, but remember, subscriptions are free. Just you know, we just we need to to build this strong uh, subscription base. So if you're listening, just just click the subscription line there, and um, and then we'll figure out you know what we're going to do here. Maybe you know maybe there will be a way we will propose something to you in the next week or two, 
in terms of how we're going to, uh, you know, financially support this and keep this going other than out of our, you know, our own pockets, uh, which is fine for right now, but it, it uh, won't last that way. So nonetheless, no worries uh, here. It's, uh, I'm just so happy you're listening. I'm happy to get the responses. If you um, want to write a review, I think most of the podcast platforms have a, a way for you to write a review. I would love to read what you think of this. Are we doing the right thing? Is this a good idea? Should I be spending my time doing this? Uh, do you have an idea? Do you have a suggestion? You know, whatever it is, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So write write a review. Um, uh, you know, rate, rate the podcast. Do whatever it is that they do on whatever platform it is you're listening to this on. Subscribe to it. Tell people about it. Share it. I think most of these platforms allow you to um, send it to friends and family and coworkers and fellow students uh, via email or uh, uh, text or whatever. So please, uh, please share it um, with people on social media. Tell people about it. We're doing something different and we're on a mission. We're on, uh, we're on a serious 2020 mission. And uh, each week we're going to bring you information and ideas and specific things that you can do uh, to all of us together, bring them down, uh, replace them with somebody great and, um, and make sure something like him never happens again in our white house. So I'm hoping most of you are, are with me on that. If you're not quite there yet, um, understand, keep listening. Um, I'm happy to have you also, uh, on board here with this, uh, with this podcast, but we got, uh, the word at the beginning of the weekend. Remember we told you last weekend, we got our 1 millionth download of this podcast after, after just, um, 17 days and, you know, I don't know, what was it? 13, 14 podcasts. We had 1 million downloads. It was, it was, um, it was stunning to us. Nobody uh, expected this. We didn't expect it. And now we learned as we entered the weekend here that, and after just another, what, three podcasts? Is that right? Yeah. After just three more podcasts, we're now doing number 18. But at the beginning of the weekend, we hit the 1.5 million mark. 1.5 million downloads of this podcast in three and a half weeks after, after just 17 episodes now, almost 1.6 million. This thing is like taken off in a way. I don't know. All I can say is thank you. Thank you for listening and being part of this and joining in. Thank you for your feedback. If you don't want to write a review, send me an email, Mike at michaelmore.com. That's it. It's that easy. Mike at michaelmore.com. I'd love to hear from you. This has really been uh, an exhilarating experience. And we have some incredible shows, some incredible episodes planned for you in the coming weeks uh, that I think you're going to be very excited about. And, and I will be with you myself as I am today talking to you about what's going on. And I want to actually talk about uh, something that... Um, you know, I have to tell you, I'm just, I'm so sick of war. I'm sick of it. I've been sick of it. I've been sick of it my whole life. My poor dad, I was, I was raised by a Marine Corps veteran. He was in all those battles in the South Pacific. Awful, awful, sick, tragic 
battles, so many tens of thousands of people uh, killed, hundreds of thousands really in the end. So I was raised in the aftermath of that and only in the 60s to, as a, as a child, be confronted with a, a new war. Vietnam started, again, as I've pointed out, a lie told to us. And um, 59,000 Americans and somewhere between two and four million Southeast Asians killed by us. Awful, awful. And I'm not going to go through every war of my lifetime here, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm sick of it. We're all sick of it, aren't we? And and to this weekend, I have to listen to Joe Biden and and John Kerry, who went campaigning for him in Iowa and defending the fact that both of them voted to send us to war in Iraq. I mean, I can't even, where does somebody get the gall to even think about running for president of the United States in the year 2020 when they voted for that war? And if you're not offended by that on some moral level, how about, how about just the stupidity of why would we run somebody who voted for that war? When we run people who voted for that war, we lose. Each time that we've had a Democratic candidate for president run since the war began in 2003, we've lost. 2004, John Kerry, he voted for the war and he lost the election. 2008, Hillary Clinton voted for the war, lost to Barack Obama in the primary but Barack Obama wins because he was against the war. He didn't vote for the war. It's one of the main reasons that he won because he wasn't part of that tragic disaster that cost thousands of American lives and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives. Joe Biden also tried to run. If you remember before this, he voted for the war. You vote for the war, you lose. You vote against the war, you win. That really so far has been the case. And the fact that Biden and Kerry are doing a tag team campaign trip through Iowa and then New Hampshire, supporting their votes for the Iraq war, it's just it's just so mind boggling to me. And it's why since a not even a week and a half ago, Trump assassinated the um, military leader of Iran, a country that, by the way, we are not at war with, that there has been just really one candidate without hesitation saying absolutely no war with Iran, and that's Bernie Sanders. He, we already know this, though, about him. This is, this is the president that's not going to take us to war. Um, all the other candidates, before they would say, well, I don't think, you know, Trump should have notified Congress first, or he should have done this or that. And they start, all start out by saying, oh, this Soleimani, he's a bad guy. Oh, he's a bad actor. Oh, he's a terrorist. Oh, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole litany of things. I was on, I was on MSNBC the other night. Oh, jeez. And the great Ali Velshi was uh, filling in for Lawrence O'Donnell. And um, I went through with him when he asked about, you know, well, at least didn't we, you know, I forgot what his question was, but... The implication was is that, you know, Soleimani was a terrorist, wasn't he? And we took care of him. And I said, no, actually, the real terrorists are, are us, Allie. We Americans. And I hate saying that, you know, but, you know, if we cannot, 
And this is true for us just in our daily personal lives. If you cannot admit your mistakes, you're never going to make it. And nobody's going to want to be around you. Nobody good, at least. If you're just going to try and and um, rationalize and excuse your behavior when it has been awful. And that's our, that's how we've been with the nation of Iran. They have never attacked us. No Iranian has ever blown up a building in this country. No Iranian's ever committed a 9-11 type attack. No Iranian's ever bombed a city in this country. No Iranian has invaded. No Iranian has, has uh, assassinated w- one of our leaders. No Iranian has done anything to us. And they all, oh, the Soleimani, oh, he's, well, he's responsible for the deaths of it. They keep raising the number. Yeah, 800 Americans. They're referring to the Iraq war because what Soleimani did as the military leader of Iran, he's like, hmm, geez, the United States has invaded the, both countries next door to us, Iraq and Afghanistan. We are surrounded by hundreds of thousands of American troops. What should we do? And he goes, oh, well, you know what we're going to have to do? At least in Iraq, we're going to have to train some of, some of the Shia, uh, our fellow Shia there, and, um, and we'll form militias, and we'll kill the invaders. Because, see, that's what people do to invaders, not liberators, invaders. We weren't there to liberate anybody. We were there to invade Iraq, take it over, take the oil, whatever other plans they were telling us about way back when, telling us that they had something to do with 9-11, which is a big fucking lie that is now, of course, well, was not now, years ago was proven to be the lie that it was. Weapons of mass destruction, lie, lie after lie after lie after lie after lie. So the country next to Iraq is like freaking out and they decide to help out to try and get the invaders out, and which means having to kill our troops. What would we do if 100,000 Iranians invaded Canada? What would, what would, or anybody, what if anybody invaded Canada with 100,000, 200,000 troops? What would our response be? Just uh, keep watching um, um, This Is Us, <laughs> The Bachelorette. I mean, seriously, what? What would we, you know what we'd do? We'd fucking get in there and kill every fucker that was invading Canada. You know, that's exactly what we'd be doing. And I don't think anybody would think that we would be wrong in trying to help our our Canadian friends if they had been overtaken, overrun by an invading force from 10,000 miles away, right? So that's what Soleimani did. And I love the number now. They're up to 800. So we lost 4,000 and some of our troops in Iraq. I'm sorry, I don't know the, it's wrong that I don't know the exact number because every single one of those troops should be remembered. Every single one, we should know the exact number. It should be on the tip of our tongue. Every one of us Americans, they died. They died, they were sent there. Those poor kids were, they signed up to defend us against enemies, against attackers. And instead they were sent to invade a country that didn't attack us. 800, Soleimani killed 800 of the 4,000. So 4,000 plus. So what is that? Um, 20%. Wow, one guy. One guy was responsible for killing 20% of all of our casualties in Iraq during the Iraq war. One guy, Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani. You ever hear of him before? Before last week? Seriously, had you ever heard of him? I'm kind of well-read. I'd never heard of him. I guess I get... I had read his name and stories and in the past or whatever, but it didn't, it didn't stick with me. 
you never heard of him. I never heard of him. And all of a sudden, he's the world's number one terrorist. He's the new bin Laden. He's the new Baghdadi. He's a legitimate leader, a leader, the the military leader of a sovereign nation when we are not at war with a nation that has never attacked us, a nation that has only used its military to defend itself against us and others. Our whole history with Iran. I'm sorry, I'm going to just take 60 seconds and go through it for you one more time. In 1953, the United States staged a coup and overthrew the democratically elected prime minister of Iran. And we did it with the help of the Brits, MI6, and we uh, overthrew the prime minister and we installed a dictator, our dictator, and we called him the Shah of Iran. And for 25 years, nearly 25 years, the Shah, our dictator, our puppet, um, killed, tortured, imprisoned, It was called a reign of terror in Iran. He did this to the Iranian people. He did it at our behest. The reason we overthrew the prime minister is because he was going to nationalize the oil companies. (laughs) Ah, No, 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 not, no. Boom. Out he went. In came the dictator. We supported him until the Iranian people had had enough. They couldn't take any more. And then finally, in 1979, they overthrew the Shah of Iran and they kicked out the United States of America for the 25 years of death and torture that we rained on them. And in kicking us out, they took over our embassy and they held our employees there as hostages for nearly a year. But they didn't kill a single one of them. They didn't line them up against the wall and execute them. After all the turmoil, all the suffering, that they've been through at the hands of the United States of America, a country that overthrew their democratically elected government in Killis. They just held the hostages till one minute after Reagan was inaugurated the following year and then let them go, proving, I guess, that they had some sort of sense of humor or a deal or whatever it was. But, man. And one year later, oh, we were so humiliated by that. Those of you old enough to remember that, remember that? The hostages, oh, the Iranian hostage crisis. The hostage crisis. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not justifying taking hostages for anything, but boy, it sure helps to just step back and understand a people that might be a little pissed off at the United States of America. And we got through that without them killing any of us. Instead, well, here's what we did. We were so upset that they held these hostages the following year um, in uh, well actually that year in 1980 we decided to help our ally Saddam Hussein he was our ally the head of Iraq he decided to invade Iran and we gave him arms we gave him chemical weapons we gave him spy help CIA satellites etc We backed him in this war with Iran, his invasion of Iran. By the the end of the war, approximately eight years later, there was a stalemate. There was no, quote, winner. There were nearly one million Iranians dead, dead at the hands of Saddam Hussein, whom we had backed 
funded, armed, supported. One, wow, what would we do with that? One million dead Americans. How would we respond? How would we feel about Iran if it had been one million dead Americans that they caused the deaths of? And yet, after that war, they don't kill a single one of us. They don't commit acts of terrorism in the United States. They don't do anything against us. In fact, just the opposite. Um, our Navy ship, the USS Vincennes, um, um, shot down an Iranian civilian airliner in 1988 and killed, I don't know how many hundreds were on the plane. We killed them. It was an accident. You know, these things happen. Um, but we didn't want to fess up to it right away. You know, it doesn't look good when you shoot down a civilian airliner. That's what we did. And finally we had to, we had to cough it up, admit it. So after overthrowing their democracy, installing a dictator, causing the deaths of tens of thousands of people, and then backing a war against Iran that cost them a million lives, the accidental shooting down of their civilian airplane with a couple hundred people on board. And then in 2000, 2001, we invade the country to their east, Afghanistan. And then in 2003, we invade the country to their west, Iraq. And we surround Iran with dozens of military bases and hundreds of thousands of troops. So yeah, I guess the Soleimani guy had his hands full with us. So then Donald Trump decides uh, to assassinate the military leader of Iran, claiming later that there was some imminent threat and then changing his story seven times in the next eight days. Pompeo changing his story, all of them. They're such liars. They're killers and they're liars. There was no imminent threat. They'll never be able to come up with a good story to prove that. You and I were not in danger, my friends, and yet a man's life was taken in our name. And then we braced for war. We didn't know what was going to happen. And the Iranians saw how nervous we were about it. And, of course, I, if you remember, I recorded a podcast and sent a letter, the, the Ayatollah, and to the president of Iran, asking them to please not kill any Americans. Please don't do that. Um, there's, let's just stop the bloodshed right now. I'm, I'm sorry for how we've treated your country for the past 70 years. Leave this one to us. Let us take care of Trump. We will do it nonviolently. We will do it democratically. We will remove him from office in November. and um, Or maybe we'll remove him. There's a slight possibility we could make that happen with the Senate trial this week. I know, I know, not likely. But um, that was my request to the leadership in Iran, that they not kill Americans. And that day they released, not because I sent them a letter, but they did admit or say publicly, promise publicly, that, that they, would, they would retaliate, but they would kill no American civilians. And I had asked them in my letter to also, please don't kill any of our troops. These are, these are kids that are, they come from poor and working class neighborhoods in our country. And they've signed up to offer to give their lives if necessary, if, if we're ever in trouble or in threat. And they were just used again in an illegal and immoral act 
to assassinate uh, your general. And um, there's no there's no reason to kill them for that because of what their commander in chief did. <clears throat> and so they was it four or five days later, they fire Iran fires and hits with 16. I think it was 16 missiles, ballistic missiles into Iraq at two uh, bases where our troops were. And they do not kill or injure a single American. These ballistic missiles, you have to, these kind of missiles that they were firing, these are very accurate missiles. You can hit your target within a meter, within a yard, from hundreds of miles away. And they, they fired them in such a way to where they would land, it would hurt no one. And no American was hurt. No American was killed. They made their statement. They did what they had to do for their own propaganda purposes for their people to show that they they responded. But um, but they didn't. After we did this, after seventy years of us killing them, they went out of their way to not kill us. And then, in the midst of all of that, one of their soldiers, one of their missile launcher misreads he misreads the radar and he thinks he sees something that's making a turn and coming toward uh toward their sights and uh, of course it was not a missile or anything it was a ukrainian jet and he blows it blows it to bits and kills everybody on board 176 people the media said that when he was informed that the action that he took um, resulted in the deaths of all these people. His first words were that he wanted to kill himself. He wanted to die. He could not live uh, with himself after what he'd just done. So here's Iran being so careful not kill any Americans that night. And they end up killing their own. The numbers have been all over the place, but roughly... There's 80 to 90 Iranians on that plane and close to 60 Canadians and Canadians who were Canadian-Iranians. They had dual citizenship. And then there were 11 Ukrainians and I think 10 from Sweden, a couple other countries. But it was, it was mostly Iranians or Canadian-Iranians that died. They made sure that none of us died. No American died. And in all of that, all the hurly-burly and the fog of war and the and the tension and the belief that we would counterattack and and being in this living in this state of fear, this state of siege that we've kept them in for 70 years, an accident occurs and they kill their own. They kill their own. I was watching the some of the memorials this weekend on television. Up up popped a picture on the TV of a group of people from the Detroit area that were killed on the plane. When I say Detroit area, uh, what I mean in this case is five students, or I think were students in, in te- and maybe one was a teacher at the University of Windsor in Windsor, Ontario, which is a half a mile across the river from Detroit. And one of the pictures I, they had of the, the one of the people who died was, was the, one of the landmarks of Detroit there in the, in the, in the background. And, and it was, it was so upsetting to see that 
that uh, these young people from Windsor were dead. Dead. Why were they dead? They were dead. Yes, yes, it was the accident committed by one individual manning a missile that he shouldn't have fired. Stupid mistake. A mistake that the president of Iran has now apologized for and has said that the mistake, even though it's a mistake, it is, as he said, an unforgivable, unforgivable mistake. But the real thing that happened was not a mistake. It was a cold, calculated, premeditated decision to murder the military head of Iran. It would be like killing the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in this country. And that decision was made by Donald Trump. Is the one responsible for this? He is ultimately responsible for the deaths of the people on that plane because there never would have been any missiles being fired had he not assassinated that general. And you can try to rationalize it any which way you want and say, well, blah, blah, and blah. This term of, it's become popular in the last decade, unintended consequences. I think what's meant by that is you're supposed to stop and think about your actions before you commit them because there may be consequences you're not thinking about. And one of the consequences here in assassinating this general is that it led to these missiles being fired. They would never have been fired had we not started this. We started it. And because we started it, one domino fell and hit the other and that hit the other. And there's 176 dead people. Add them to the list of the 70 years of our behavior in the way that we have killed people in Iran, the way that we've had them imprisoned, the way that we've tortured them, the way that we've invaded the countries that border each side of them and threatened them. What did they do? What did they do to us? Can somebody explain? And by the way, make it somebody who actually knew the name Kassab Soleimani before last week. Because nobody ever heard of him. And the reason he hadn't heard of him is because he didn't do anything to you. And I think deep down we all know this isn't over. While I was explaining this history of ours on MSNBC the other night to Ali Valshi, you know, we were talking about the, the Senate trial coming up this week. And I was repeating my call for witnesses, that we need witnesses. We need John Bolton testifying he needs to be asked what else is on that server where they were hiding the call from the Ukrainian president. That isn't the only thing. If in three years of Trump's presidency, you think that's the only thing they felt that they had better hide that? Some action of his, something he said or did? That server is loaded. Loaded. With a man who's told 15,000 lies in three years, that server is loaded with misdeeds, wrongdoings, I would bet any amount of money on this, my friends. That's why Bolton has to testify this week. That's why he has to be asked that question. That's why it has to be, that server has to be subpoenaed. And we're not going to take our time up in the courts. There's already a judge there at the trial. He's the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's the judge of Trump's trial in the Senate, Chief Justice John Roberts. And he's going to have to say, yes, you have to turn this server over. It's evidence. There is a trial this isn't a kangaroo court. This isn't going to be a sham trial. Not with me sitting here. I'm Chief Justice John Roberts. Oh, you know they don't want this to happen. They don't want Roberts to have any power. He has not been loyal to dear leader 
John Roberts, a conservative, was the deciding vote that saved Obamacare. He not only he not only voted with the liberals on the court, he wrote the majority opinion. He was the deciding vote that, that struck down Louisiana's restrictive anti-woman uh, abortion law. He sided with the liberals on that. He sided with the liberals on the death penalty case. <laughs> he doesn't always play ball, and they know it, and they've got to be scared about this. That's why this trial this week is so important. And Ellie Velshi said to me there on MSNBC, what do, you, what, what do you think's on that server? I said, well, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, we can kind of guess, even just knowing Trump. He came into office thinking that he actually won the popular vote too, that Hillary, those 3 million votes were rigged. So he probably used whatever powers he had to try to prove that he, he won not just the Electoral College, but the popular vote. So that, that was probably hidden on there. Um, he came into office still believing that, that uh, uh, Obama was a Muslim. Obama was born in Kenya. What, what powers of the presidency did he use to try and dig up more dirt on Obama? I'd love to know. I'll bet you that's on the server. What about the, the Washington Post journalist, the Saudi dissident, Jamal Khashoggi, executed inside the Saudi embassy in Turkey? Did Trump know about that in advance? Was it discussed? Did he help with the cover-up? His good friends, the Saudis? Is that on the server? Who knows? We won't know unless we have a real trial with witnesses and evidence. When you have a trial in a democracy, you have evidence and you have witnesses. No evidence, no witnesses. It's not a trial. It's a, it's a complete sham. It should be called out for what it is. Nancy Pelosi has been, she's done the right thing in refusing to send these articles of impeachment over until she's sure that it's going to be a real American trial not a trial in the, in the dictatorships that have been supported by Trump and the Republicans all these years. So Ellie Vell, she says to me, when I bring that up about Obama being the Muslim from Kenya, he goes, well, you actually, Michael, you, you know another Muslim from Kenya. And I paused for a second, and then I went, oh, because he had told me this privately before, but I don't think he'd ever said it on air. He said, I am that person. I am a Muslim born in Kenya. And he told me later that his, his parents, they were, they were in, in Indians from India who lived in South Africa. There's a large Indian community there. It's where Gandhi began his political activities. And um, they had to flee South Africa because they were anti-apartheid activists. And they ended up in Kenya, and that's where he was born. And then they came to Canada, and that's where he was raised. And now he holds a dual citizenship, Canadian and American citizenship. And I, I said to him, well, um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you made, I'm glad for everybody that made it here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, I said to him and, uh, and thank you for sneaking Obama uh, into the country with you uh, when you came from uh, Kenya. But you know, I, I thought, wow, that was kind of a brave thing for him to say. He's an anchor on a major network. I'm a, I'm a Muslim from Kenya. He says, we went to commercial was, my time was up there and I just, I want to get out of the chair and, and kind of go over and give him a hug. And I, I thought, well, I don't know, that's probably violating some kind of cable news rules. <laughs> but I was like, I kind of hope he feels okay. Having said that, he certainly looked like he felt okay. It's an important thing to say, because that's who we are. We're all, we're the mixed stew of everything. We're not a melting pot, folks. I'm sorry. That was a, a bad idea. We don't want to melt. We want to retain who we are, but we're all Americans. We're just a big stew of 
all kinds of people from all parts of the of the world who made it here by hook or crook, with the exception of our descendants of African slaves who were brought here on ships and chains, and our native people who were here first. And um, that was our first mortal sin, a genocide of them. And we built this country on the backs of slaves. That was the second mortal sin. But I know it's no longer Sunday now. We're into Monday. So I'll I'll dispense and, with the sermon. I just want to say that um, I'm so sorry to any suffering that we've caused around the world. I'm really proud of the good things that we've done, that we've done, the progress that we've made here at home. We're not there yet. I know the good that we've done around the world. I've seen it. But that seems like such a time gone by at this point because the list of things that we've done is, is uh, I know, I know, find a movie, find a happier movie to go to next weekend, Mike. Let's get the temperature back down into the 20s and let's, let's have a trial this week. Let's have a trial that tells the truth, that reveals the other things he's done, that all we need are 20 Republicans, 20 of the 53, a minority of them, just 20 of the 53 to say, okay, that's enough. It's disgusting. I will not, I will not enable or abide by this man any longer. This is my plea to 20 of you, 20 of you in the Senate. This is the moment to stop the madness. What he did in Iran, we don't know what else he's planning to do to try to get him as himself reelected. But folks, this is not going to be a good year. If we don't stop him now, what will it take? Is it possible? Is there anything we can do if we fail in the Senate to somehow force his resignation? I know that just sounds like, are you kidding me? This guy? No, we're the side that resigns. We're the side that quits. We're the side that hangs our head. We're the side that says, well, maybe we should vote for the people that voted for the Iraq war. He meant well. Now is our time to take a real stand to really turn this country in the right direction. The people are ready. The majority of Americans are with us on this. Don't be afraid. The other side isn't afraid. They should be afraid. There's a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them. But we're afraid for some reason. Don't be afraid. Come on. I'm here. I'm with you. It's not just me either. There's a whole bunch of us. We can do this. This is going to be an interesting week. And God, I pray that it gets cold outside. Because the last thing I want to see is the sun rising at 2 in the morning. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 18 of Rumble with Michael Moore. I am Michael Moore. And I so appreciate you being part of this. Tell your friends to listen in um, and subscribe. It's free. And I'll talk to you here in the next day or two. Take care. When you walk through this town like a stranger But you know all the buildings and streets Every house wants to tell you a story Every lane wants to tell And you thank God that gravity grounds you For you float like a so weightless beauty